is a great big beautiful tomorrow Shining at the end of every day There's a great big beautiful tomorrow Tomorrow's just a dream away Man has a dream and that's the start He follows his dream with mind and heart When it becomes a reality It's a dream come true for you and me So there's a great big beautiful tomorrow Shining at the end of every day There's a great big beautiful tomorrow Just a dream away Hello and welcome to Dream With Mind and Heart. I'm Ryan Silberstein and with me is Megan Bojarski. Hi. And we're your hosts through this chronological tour of every Disney movie ever. This week we are sailing the high seas for our first trip to Treasure Island. This is part of our Adventures in Literature season that looks at the first half of the 1950s, sort of post-post-war, but pre-Disneyland TV, Disneyland Park stuff. So there's a bunch of things in here, most of which are literary adaptations, including this version of Treasure Island from 1950, adapted from Robert Louis Stevenson's 1883 novel of the same name, which was originally titled The Sea Cook, a story for boys, and was a it was serialized in a children's magazine. This is maybe one of the most adapted works of literature in the film, like in into film. There is a silent movie version from 1918 that, as far as we know, I think is the first uh, at screen adaptation of this. And it's been a- adapted over and over and over. I think just off the top of my head, I'm going to say that maybe Dracula outpaces it depending on how many times you count movies that feature the character Dracula, but are not actually based directly on Bram Stoker's novel. Yeah, adaptations are always kind of tricky when it comes to that. Things like Dracula, Cinderella, all of those kinds of things. It, it really depends on how, uh, how stringent we are to that original source material. Speaking of the source material with Treasure Island, as far as I can tell, I have not read the full book, but I did go into some of the details with it. This is actually a fairly authentic adaptation from the book. There's some more plot twists regarding essentially who's controlling Jim at any given time. And then the the biggest kind of changeover that people will see between the book and between this version of Treasure Island is that this kind of develops a bit of a friendship between Jim and Silver that pretty much goes through till the end. Despite sequels that were later created, the original book actually ends with Jim essentially having PTSD and basically saying that if he ever saw or heard Long John Silver again, he would panic. It talks about essentially like, money's great, but I am never risking going against that guy ever again. And, you know, the movie kind of leaves it as an ambiguous friendship. Like, they both acknowledge that Silver will use Jim whenever convenient, but they don't hate each other, so there's that's definitely the biggest deviation. Other than that, though, it's, it's pretty accurate to that source material. It's actually one of the better strict adaptations that Disney does. And I do think, though, that the change in the relationship, the sort of tweak in relationship between Jim Hawkins and Long John Silver is something that gets picked up in more in later adaptations. And it's funny because I was trying to think of which ones I've seen. And off the top of my head, I thought of the Wishbone episode, which I don't remember how that treats the, I believe Wishbone, the dog, plays Jim Hawkins. I don't know how the relationship between him and Long John Silver is portrayed. But I do remember the other two Disney versions being Muppet Treasure Island and Treasure Planet. And both of those, there is a a friendly, and I think in Treasure Planet, it's even more paternal relationship between Long John Silver and Jim Hawkins. As sort of he he sort of becomes a father figure for him. Yeah, I could definitely see that, and we'll talk about it more in the legacy. Just how wild and crazy some of that gets. I will say one of the things that happens in the book is that basically. 
I believe right after the original pirate dies, Jim's dad randomly dies. And so that's like canonically a thing that he had just lost his father and then randomly went off on this ship. So oddly enough, if you kind of blend those two things, it sets up a very good narrative for Jim to be desperately looking for, uh, you know, a father figure at least. Although obviously that was something they kind of scrapped in this because having three characters die in the span of like five minutes in the beginning of the movie is a little bit weird, especially for Disney. Killing off characters at the beginning of a movie? What is this, Pixar? Um, uh. <laughs> <laughs> no, I do that's, feel... <laughs> that's more of a end of the first act thing with Disney. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> and I think, I, I do think that Jim's dad often gets dropped from adaptations. I think probably for that very reason. I keep I keep going back and forth as to whether or not Treasure Island is a good story. It certainly has good story elements. And I actually think it's my favorite parts usually end up being them like before they get before they leave England is is usually like my favorite part of the story because it 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 is so like exciting and uncertain and like, you know, especially knowing the twist that's coming where the crew that they hire turn out to all be pirates. Like all that kind of stuff is fun, but I feel like once the, like once the pirates end up being in charge and like the mutiny and all happens, like it, it, it kind of starts to lose me. Like it just, there's not a, as much like dramatic tension, I feel like towards the end. And I feel like adding in all of the twists in this version, you know, I feel like that's trying to sort of make up for how straightforward the source material gets. I could definitely see that. The fact that this was originally serialized makes a lot of sense because that's something that you can kind of work around in that aspect. I think that Treasure Island would make a really good, like, drunk history style story where, like, they have, they have the early grounds and then as you get drunker and drunker, it's that much funnier when we get random plot twists. Like, I'll admit that when, you know, Jim thinks that everyone's dead and then it just turns out to be, like, Long John wearing the coat and he jumps up at him, the jump scare got me. But I think that would be hilarious if it was being played out by increasingly drunk people. Because as much as it was a very serious life or death situation, I feel like the relationship between Jim and Long John just kept being like, I'm just kidding. Or am I? And that's that's just such a good setup for a, a very kind of meandering, like, have an improv troupe read the Wikipedia page and then make them perform it. Like, I feel like that is definitely a better setting than a traditional movie for the type of story that it is. But it's definitely, it's got some amazing elements that are just kind of hard to hard to forget so i feel like as we'll talk about with some of the other stories some things have better narrative some things have better characters i feel like this has a really great story if you gloss over it the individual <laughs> story beats definitely get lost a bit and i think it has a great setup and I do like, I, you know, I like the ending. I like all of the individual plot elements, but there is something that tends to lose me over the course of it. But I do have good news for you, Megan, because your pitch for this being a drunk history is far closer to the way the Muppets adapt this movie than you ever might have guessed. <laughs> I could see that. I, I could definitely see that. You know, I said the drunk history. I know there's drunk Shakespeare, where essentially before... The performance the actors all have to take like four shots of straight liquor and then as they go through at like the end of each act they have to take more and as, at a certain point the audience has to finish the story and i could definitely see the muppets going more of that route with it yeah there, there's a lot of fun choices in there and a lot of good like running gags and i think really clever casting for the Muppets. Tim Curry is the plays Long John Silver as the only human character, or at least the man, some of the other pirates are, are humans, but it, it's a really fun adaptation for a lot of different reasons. And I think sort of, not lampshades, but like it glosses over some of, enough of the story beats with comedy where you're like, okay, this is actually on all working, all working for me. 
I think that this is one of those stories very similar to Jekyll and Hyde, very similar to, at this point, probably The Sixth Sense, where the plot twist is not going to work on a modern audience. Like, everyone knows where this is going. You, at a minimum, there is a guy who is lacking a leg and has a parrot and has that accent. We know where he's going. You know, maybe you've eaten at Long John Silver's The Restaurant. I don't think the plot twist is going to work, and that changes the way you have to tell the story. And that, I think, is part of why I liked this adaptation. Because if you don't have the plot twist, what's really exciting is going into the characters and getting their plot twists. So, yeah, Long John Silver's a pirate. Okay, that's, that's not surprising. Does he care about Jim or not. That's something that the audience can can kind of cling to. And I think that's mm -hmm. something that this movie in particular definitely worked with. That being said, we have gone way off track, so let's just finish off for a second looking back at the conception of this movie. Walt had been planning on doing some kind of adaptation for a very long time. He had initially suggested the idea in the 1930s, Walt acquired the film rights to the novel from MGM in 1949. And then basically the big push for why they did it was, interestingly enough, still World War II. So basically what we're going to be seeing with this run of live-action British films is that more or less part of the Marshall Plan, part of the post-World War II kind of bring-the-world-back plan, was that money that was made in the UK had to be funneled back into the UK. And so what that meant was Walt and the Disney company did not get money for basically any of the films that were war era and slightly post-war era in the UK. It was all frozen. They couldn't do anything with it until they put it into some kind of production, considered starting an entirely new animation studio, but more or less went... It's taken me a long time to get where we are now, and I don't want to do that again in another country. And with all of that in mind, he decided that live action was the way to go, and this was a story he liked playing with. So more or less a combination of a story that he wanted to work with and circumstances far beyond his control meant that Walt decided that this would be the first fully live action movie that the Disney Corporation was going to release. Yeah, and it's funny because I, I did not know this before, you know, doing this podcast, basically. But I always thought it was interesting. That's like, oh, all of a sudden we're doing live action. And, you know, we've been sort of tracing the development where like Song of the South is considered like a proper hybrid movie. And then So Dear to My Heart is like mostly live action with some animated segments to keep the Disney brand going. And then by here, you know, now we're talking about a fully live action film. You know, this makes this one of the most important movies that we are probably going to talk about in this podcast in terms of, you know, it's, it's legacy to the studio, like not necessarily the legacy of like Disney's treasure Island, but just the fact that, you know, they're still making live action movies today. And the fact that this is, you know, still very much within like, again, they did treasure planet many, many years later, but you can imagine this is an animated movie, I think, just as equally as a live action one. Whereas, you know, some of the other stories they've done, like Bambi and Pinocchio, you know, and as we'll talk about Alice in Wonderland, you know, they, they're stories that feel like they're made for animation because of all the technical complexity. Like, there's a lot of problems you have to solve to do them in live action in, you know, the 40s and 50s, especially. You know, now they will just do it with CGI and call it live action, you know, but moving into this whole new medium and doing it in England. It's just, it's a very interesting trajectory for the company. And so in some ways, it's more interesting to me now that I have the backstory than I did, than it was before. Definitely think that there's a lot going on here. I mean, as you said, just kind of tracing through the history like we have, I think live action was inevitable. And technically speaking, Disney had put out fully live action segments, I'll say, before this point, but not a full-length feature film that was fully live-action. There's a great quote from the production of this that essentially said that the, like, Disney mainstays who saw Walt as they were putting this together 
once Walt was behind the camera, they knew that they had lost him forever because Walt's going to Walt. He found something cool and he decided that he was absolutely in love with it. So I think that we definitely have live action coming. That was never really in doubt. But the specifics of how the live action came, what story, what cast uh, is all very interesting because he basically looked at England and went, none of these people know what they're doing for animation. Like, uh, and I, I will admit I have not done the research, but as far as I know, the UK hadn't done terribly much in animation at that point in time. He didn't want to have to train people all over again, especially when he was getting tired of it. I was going to say, especially because it took so long for animation to be profitable in the U.S. So, like, you know, trying to start up, like, he knew how much the cost would be. You don't have to be Roy Disney, I think, to understand how expensive starting a second animation studio would have been compared to being like, we're going to finance this one movie. I mean, that is one of the advantages of live action is that it's a lot more it's a lot more modular. You know, you can hire a director, a cinematographer, you can rent studio space, like you hire, you know, union people to build the sets. Like there is things you can plug into where you're like, all right, this is the script. This is the cast. We've hired the director. You can put all the pieces together movie by movie where it doesn't seem worthwhile to set up like a whole animation studio and do like one feature film. You know, like you want to, it has to be a long-term plan, I think, for that to ever, you know, work in in a dollars and cents uh, way. Definitely. And so, you know, the Disney company and then RKO as a whole, both of them didn't have access to their British money. And so RKO had kind of pushed this idea on them. But like you said, I think a lot of it is that it, they didn't have to start from scratch. They could connect to these, you know, already existing structures. So as we turn into the production side of this, Purse Pierce was the producer, Byron Haskin directed, Lawrence Edward Watkin adapted the novel and made it a screenplay. Other than that, everybody on the crew was British. Going a little bit further, Bobby Driscoll stars. Everybody else on the project was British. So this was one of those situations where they really weren't, this wasn't necessarily a full Disney project. It was a project led by Disney people, but actually produced by the, you know, cast and crew that had been building in the UK over the past 20, 30 years. Yeah, and it, it's super interesting to me to think about it because I have spent way too much time digging into the making of the original Star Wars movie and all of the stuff that is uh, on sets in that movie was shot first in England. They did some pickup shots in other locations and obviously all the special effects stuff back in California, but you know, like the all the stuff in the cantina uh, outside of some pickup shots, like that's filmed in England, all the stuff on the Death Star... And so it's really interesting because going into the behind the scenes stuff, the crew hated George Lucas because they're like, who's this young, like American upstart who's like trying to tell us what to do. And he's making this like crazy space movie or whatever. And so I'm, I'm now just like thinking of the, how the, if, if Disney's charm worked on like the British people or really it was like, okay, like we know Byron Haskins. So like, we're actually working for him even though, you know, it is a, a Disney movie and I feel like Walt definitely tried to put his stamp on it. You know, maybe they had better luck because they at least had an English director as opposed to like this, you know, American, you know, carpetbagger. I think that there's definitely a sense that this was being, it, it was run by the crew more than run by the Disney Corporation. Mm-hmm. Another level to that and one of the best stories about this is that uh, Bobby Driscoll, as we know, Disney as the company and as the man, loved him, put him in everything, had him contracted to go in everything. So he's our star. He was not allowed to be legally in the UK. So basically, everyone who was working had to have a work visa and a work permit. And Bobby Driscoll didn't. And there's a very good reason for that being that he was two years too young to be able to get a work permit and a work visa. So basically the entire filming that included him was against British law. And they very quickly figured this out. 
So the Ministry of Labor uh, and a court in Beaconsfield realized that there was a very big problem here. Yes, Disney's here, we want Disney, but yeah, this is not allowed. So they find Bobby Driscoll himself, or, you know, the entity of his money, his father, and the company, a hundred pounds each, every single day. That doesn't sound like much, but it is a lot, especially for all three units. So they essentially had to decide either to scrap everything they had done or to finish it. And so they finished it by rearranging everything as much as possible so that Bobby Driscoll could crank out his scenes as quickly as possible. If you, if you, this is going to be off topic, if you have seen the final season of High School Musical, the musical, the series, minor spoiler alert, uh, they talk about the fact that it is very expensive and annoying to rearrange your entire filming schedule to get one person done early, basically. There's a, there's a plot line about that, so if you've seen that show, you know exactly what we're talking about here. And they did it. They did it. They didn't want to have to reshoot. They thought that Bobby Driscoll had great chemistry with the actor who was playing Long John Silver, which I completely agree with. And so they changed everything so that they could make sure that Bobby Driscoll had done it. The appeal court said that Disney, quote, had brazenly flouted British law, which is true. And according to Variety, it cost the company an extra $84,000 to rearrange the shooting. So it wasn't necessarily the 300 pounds a day that they were being fined, so much as the fact that British law was coming after them and they had to rearrange everything. So the fact that this is actually a very cohesive story, that it doesn't feel like it was shot as... Bobby Driscoll scenes and non-Bobby Driscoll scenes is kind of a miracle. But that also contributes to this idea that once Bobby Driscoll had fled Britain from being under attack, this was even less a Disney project. This was a bunch of British people putting on a production of Treasure Island. Yeah, the whole thing is absolutely fascinating. And um, we'll, we'll talk more about Bobby Driscoll and and what becomes of him later in this episode but the just the rearranging the whole schedule Leonard Malton has uh, a in his book has a quote from uh, the director Byron Haskin where he says like his major regret of this was actually not being able to spend to have Bobby Driscoll spend more time on set interacting with the other actors where there were some of the scenes where they sort of like shot him and then like you know shot around him later that was like his only regret of this movie looking back was that if he had more time to spend with them, he thought he could have gotten the performances even better, which I think is, you know, a a big compliment that he's making to himself. But I think it it shows like how much care was actually put into this, even though, you know, we're kind of talking about it where it might sound like a work for hire, but the people involved were really invested in doing this. And I think one of the other big things that really helps this movie feel bigger than it actually probably was uh, in terms of like scope and and the look of it were the use of what are called glass shots so it's an artificial background or set extension that are painted onto glass uh, in front of the camera lens so you know I think a lot of people are aware of like matte paintings where they put like a a big background in there. You can actually do it using the foreground too, where you paint something on glass that's maybe, you know, like the top half of what you're shooting. So instead of seeing the regular sky when the camera is still, you see like a painted sky and then like the real set and the actors below it. But using that sense of of distance and everything, it, it, it makes it look like one image. And the... The use of that in this is is really is really great. When they are at the port and you're seeing all the the ships in the background, like all the masts and the ropes and them all in the harbor, that was done uh, using a glass shot. So they didn't have all of those ships. They had they had one boat <laughs> to film this movie with, and so the other ones are are sort of a painted background. But you know, even knowing that was the case while watching this movie, I was still impressed. I couldn't really tell the difference. Like it doesn't seem to have like aged any. 
These were all done by Peter Ellenshaw, who worked on The Thief of Baghdad, which is uh, was a popular British movie. Later, he joins the Disney staff, and he be, he is now a Disney legend because he won an Academy Award for his work on Mary Poppins. So Peter Ellenshaw is definitely a name that will come around again at some point in the future. But it's it's cool to see like this is where like he joins the team. You know, this is like the Avengers. This is <laughs> this is where they 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 pick him up and he starts working more and more for Disney. So not only was this the first live action Disney movie, this was actually also the first version of Treasure Island in color, which is kind of interesting to think about that being like at least a selling point to an audience is like, oh, yes, yes, you've seen one of these before. But this time we have color, which I think is a really cool selling point. There was a London premiere on July 22nd of 1950. According to the American Film Institute, a June article in the English paper Daily Film Renter, uh, Treasure Island was also going to have an ocean premiere during the Queen Mary's transatlantic crossing uh, in July of 1950 and would have been shown throughout that whole month. The advertising for this uh, included a nationwide treasure hunt for which the studio put uh, treasure chests that could be printed in newspapers where you could sort of open like the paper flap to see what was underneath. They gave away apparently $250,000 in prizes, which makes me feel like that $48,000 that they had to pay to redo the shooting schedule is not that big of a deal. But this was like a huge, you know, just a massive marketing campaign. They really put everything behind it. And it it was a huge success. Uh, So when it opened... In America, it, at the end of July, uh, July 29th, 1950, it ended up taking in $4.8 million at the box office against a $1.8 million budget, which makes it wildly successful, especially compared to, you know, most of the movies that we've talked about in the past 10 episodes have all been, <laughs> have all made less than their budget. So uh, this was a huge win for Disney overall. Yeah, one of the other things that was part of kind of the marketing for this, they also had the Lux Radio Theater broadcast, which I believe was in uh, the UK, which was a 60-minute radio adaptation of the movie. That was put out uh, January 29th, 1951, including Bobby Driscoll, which makes it even weirder because I am pretty sure that was a British release, but I'm pretty sure he still wasn't legally allowed to do that. But they they put all of the effort they could into this, and it was incredibly, incredibly successful. Like we said, I mean, that box office is huge, just in general, but especially compared to the budget here. And I think this is another reason why we're going to see, like we saw with Cinderella, and as we'll see in the future, that Disney started kind of, even with their animated films, making live-action films first so that they could figure out all the little details, not spend nearly as much money, and hopefully get one of these similar four times the box office kind of moments. It was extremely successful, and it was really kind of beloved as an adaptation, which makes it really weird that it doesn't really have that much of a legacy, at least that we think about today. This is not one of the movies that everyone tells you, oh, you've definitely got to see it. That being said, I will tell you right now, you got to see it. It is comedically awful violence. It has some really stupid moments. It is very obvious that this is an old movie. But you know what? It's one of the most entertaining movies I think we've seen on this podcast so far. And especially if you know kind of the backstory behind it. Again, Try and find the scenes where Bobby Driscoll wasn't there, and it's actually pretty hard to tell. Like, it's it's very well edited, it's very well acted, but basically the biggest legacy of this that we'll talk about before going into the direct legacies comes down to the actor for Long John Silver, Robert Newton. Robert Newton is officially the patron saint of International Talk Like a Pirate Day. Now that sounds funny until you hear the details or you watch this movie, in which case you go, yeah, yeah, that that guy is, he is the stereotype pirate. And you might watch it and go, oh wow, that's really cliche. No, it wasn't. It was not at this point. He made it cliche. It's one of those movies that, that kind of starts the trends. 
and Robert Newton is insane. So just for clarifying this, 1950, Treasure Island. Really big movie. He was great in it. 1952, he was Blackbeard the Pirate. We're diversifying a little bit, but still sticking with the pirate. 1954, the sequel movie Long John Silver that is not a Disney movie, but is technically a sequel to the Disney movie. Weird one. Uh, it's actually an Australian one. Which explains why, because, you know, I mean, they're criminals down there, so, like, they're not <laughs> going to care about copyright. Apo- apologies to our Australian listeners. <laughs> yeah, I, um, given that I was just telling my uh, Australian uncle that he should listen to our podcast, I think you might have just alienated us a viewer or a listener. No, we love the Australians. <laughs> so, Long John Silver, the sequel, then created the spin-off The Adventures of Long John Silver, which was a 25-episode series in 1954. Of course, these two sequels completely recast Jim Hawkins. Other than that, though, same guy for Long John Silver, very similar spirit. He then died in 1956. So we're talking within six years of this movie coming out, he defined what the pirate would be in media for the rest of time. Ironically enough, he also played Javert, the extremely morally rigid character in the 1952 version of Les Mis. So that, that, that's a little breaking from tradition. But yeah, so you may not know this movie. You may not know him. But I guarantee you felt the consequences of it. Every time I think Krispy Kreme has dressed like a pirate day, every time social media talks about talk like a pirate day, all of it, all of it goes back to this movie and this actor who really, it, he, he is the pirate. Like, bravo. Six years before he died after this movie, he, he did so much for kind of the, the cultural perception of this kind of character. Yeah, I mean, the the whole, like, genre of R jokes, like, is because of Robert Duden. Like, the pirate voice, it, like, we wouldn't have Spongebob if it wasn't for Robert Newton. Like, when you really start thinking about how pervasive, like, that pirate voice is his invention. And it really, like, it is, it's just, it, it's mind-blowing to think about that that was not a thing that existed, you know, I, well, my parents were born a few in this decade but a little bit later but it's like that's the thing that like my grandparents didn't grow up like making that voice at each other and telling dumb jokes with it because it hadn't been invented yet it's it's just like it's crazy to think about because it's such a huge cultural impact treasure island added a lot uh i'm i'm not going to say that all of it comes down to the actor a lot of the looks and kind of the breakdowns of course the parrot that can be traced back to the book but if we're talking like the way it feels, the way it looks and sounds, it really does go back to this movie. And the only thing I can think of that we historically connect with pirates that isn't in this movie is going to come in an episode in a couple of weeks. Because the last thing that we have not seen yet is the hook hand. And that is it. That is all I can think of that was not from this movie or from the book that it came from. And that is really just insane to say. Yeah, I mean, it's an absolutely, like I said, huge impact. One of the, maybe one of the most cultural, culturally impactful movies that has ever been made. But again, I, you know, most people don't know. I didn't know that until doing, again, doing the prep for the show. I had no idea that this is where that whole voice comes from that whole accent i guess or dialect i guess it's i guess it's closer to i'm gonna say having never studied any sort of linguistics i'm gonna make the call that's closer to a dialect yeah and i mean if we want to talk treasure island as a whole everything the entire reason that you know what scurvy is is because of this series or, or this book and and it's many many adaptations because it was an important plot development that they have barrels of apples on the ship to treat scurvy. You would not know about that. You would not think of scurvy as something that pirates or, or 
seafarers broadly get if it weren't for this story. And again, it's it was a huge story. This story absolutely had its own cultural impact. I will never deny that. But this movie had so much more of an impact than will will be communicated by the rest of what we'll say from its legacy. Yeah, absolutely. And and the movie itself does continue to be popular. Uh, it was one of the first uh, Disney, one of the first Disney movies to be shown on television. First telecast in January of 1955 on the Disneyland TV program. And they actually showed it in full. So usually, like we've mentioned a few times, that they would show one of the animated movies as an episode of the Disneyland show, but they would have to cut it down to fit in the hour time block. Uh, this is one where they actually showed it in two parts rather than having it edited down. It was broadcast again in the, in the 1960s during what became Walt Disney's Wonderful World of Color after the show moved to NBC. It was also, this movie specifically received a comic book adaptation in the pages of Dell for Color, issue number 624, uh, also in April 1955. So you can see, like, even a few years later, like, this movie is well-liked enough for them to go back and make a comic adaptation of it, you know, a couple years after the movie had come out. Ironically, Del Four Color had already done the story back in 1942 in the pages of Famous Stories number one, which was 60 pages drawn by Robert Bug. So again, they had gone back to because this version was so popular that they specifically adapted, readapted the Disney Treasure Island rather than just reprinting the previous version that they had already done. In 1974, there is an island on the Walt Disney World property. It's in the body of water that is close-ish to Magic Kingdom, opened as Treasure Island. It it's basically was like a wildlife kind of exhibit. Like they would raise a lot of birds and stuff on there and have like more like nature trail style activities. It was later renamed to Discovery Island and then eventually was abandoned. There's a a bunch of people who are like urban explorer types who have gone there and like posted extensive videos to YouTube of like, you know, the buildings were just left there and some of the animal enclosures were just kind of like left open and things. So it, it has this weird kind of cult legacy that way in the park. Yeah. And this is one of those things that uh, if, if you're into creepypastas, the story abandoned by Disney does talk about this. It, it's this concept of something that Disney had this, place full of you know people and animals and creatures and why did they abandon it 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 kind of goes back into that snl sketch about all of the things that are in the disney vault it becomes this piece of lore of the dark side of uh disney that has just kind of a a weird legacy of its own all that being said it continues to kind of reappear as the movie and in other formats so again um Walt Disney Productions re-released the film to U.S. theaters in 1975. It had a bit of issues because the Motion Picture Association gave the film a PG. Disney had a kind of policy that they could only release G movies at this point. So they actually had to cut the film. They cut it nine minutes to get it down to a G rating. I would imagine cutting out some of the violence that is is really not that bad. I it's it's funnier than anything else, but they they do kill people, so I'll I'll grant them that. Still popular. 1986, Disney Channel put together a 10-episode sequel series called Return to Treasure Island. And then we start getting into these adaptations that you and I are more familiar with. Again, 1996, Muppet Treasure Island. I have not seen it. I am aware of it. I am excited for us to get there with the podcast. 2002, Treasure Planet, which was not very successful, but has certainly a cult following of its own. 2018, they put out a comic book of Disney Treasure Island starring Mickey Mouse, which was not explicitly connected to this version, but again was continuing with this legacy of you know, the story of Treasure Island that had done so, so well back in the 50s. You know, one thing to note about the story in general is that there are no, there's, I think there's really only one woman in the whole story, which is Jim's mom. 
but she is not in this movie and so there are no there are no women in this movie apparently return to treasure island that disney makes as their sequel to it does feature mrs hawkins and a new character called lady isabella uh, the Muppet version includes two women, so the owner of the inn where Jim lives, and and Miss Piggy as a gender-bent version of Ben Gunn. Treasure Planet includes three uh, women characters, uh, Mrs. Hawkins, uh, Captain Amelia, who is changed to a, uh, a woman, and a customer at the inn. So it's it's definitely something that, like, as this gets adapted, again, more, you know, closer to more recent times, there are you know, attempts to at least represent that women exist in the world, you know, and the, the, the Muppet version, I think is particularly inspired because I don't think you could make or should make a Muppet movie without Miss Piggy, but trying to figure out how to fit her into this story is like, that's, that's, that's an inspired move, I think. Definitely. Because yes, you can add in Jim's mom. She's the easiest one to add, but Miss Piggy will never take that small of a role. She would be horrified. So I think that definitely makes sense. I will admit, I didn't terribly mind that there weren't women in this. I feel like that's terrible to say as a woman. Very obviously, this doesn't pass the Bechdel test because there aren't women. You know, I I appreciate that women exist in later versions. I will say it's a good story. It it is fun on its own. Great to... uh, imply that women can exist in adventure stories in the future though. The other point that is somewhat contentious with this is the film's disability representation, which goes back to the original story. So Smith was actually based on the author's friend who had lost a leg due to tuberculosis. It was very, very important to the author that Smith never be seen as lesser due to being disabled. And I think that that's something that they actually do very well in the movie. I am disabled. I am not missing limbs, however, so feel free to correct me. But I think that they do a pretty good job of showing times where he is struggling from his lack of leg, specifically when he sits down to kind of talk with the non-pirates, and then they refuse to help him up. Obviously, there are some weaponizations of his disability, but he is never viewed as incompetent. If anything, he is dangerously competent. So I think that overall, it does a very good job with that. The perhaps better argument is that, particularly in the 50s, Disney kind of portrays a lot of disabled evil characters. And so while the Golden Age may have had more of kind of the interpretation of mentally disabled people as being lesser, the Silver Age does more of physically disabled people are evil. Neither of those trends are very good. That being said, I feel like he is certainly the most well-developed and engaging character in the movie. So it's, it's a bit of a complicated issue. I think that, taken on its own at least, in this film, I don't think that there is terribly much that is trying to take advantage of his disability, so much as showing it just as part of who he is, which I actually really appreciated getting the chance to see. And I do think that he has enough redeeming qualities, too, that like it's not... Yes, it is playing into that trope, for sure. But if that trope didn't exist, I can't say I would really have a problem with the way it's presented here. And, you know, like I said, I think softening his character a little bit by having him be so friendly to Jim. And, like, he's a he. it's almost like he's closer to a, like, an anti-hero than, like, a straight-out villain. You know, he's not... He doesn't tie anybody to train tracks or anything in this. Like, he's he's being a pirate, but, like, he's not... You know, he's not the kind of villain who's like doing, he's clearly motivated, I guess. It's all about the money. So it's not that he's like hurting people because he's enjoying it necessarily. Like he is just, they're in, they're in his way. And so I feel like that softens it a little bit. But again, like because that trope is so prevalent, like you can't really discount it either. If, if we were to be able to take this movie outside of everything else about the entertainment industry, I don't think that it is 
a sexist movie, and I don't think that it is a terribly ableist movie. That being said, looking in the context of everything else, there's certainly some problematic elements. But I will also say that, as far as his villainy is concerned, especially my YA book talk girls and those who love Loki and Bucky Barnes, this is a character that we would just call super sexy today. This is, <laughs> this is the guy that, you know... Everyone is saying, like, is he really that bad of a guy? Like, he protected the kid. It would have been much easier for him not to. He protected the kid. He has loyalty to people. I I think his villainy is certainly the kind that we would call a sexy, morally gray character these days. Despite the fact that he was certainly intended as the villain in its own time. I did not expect to... Like, I did not walk into this recording <laughs> expecting to get Long John Silver's daddy, but, you know, I, I can't say that I'm I'm totally opposed to it. Am I, I actually wrong? think it's a really... No, I, it sounds like a hot take, but the more I think about it, the more you're 100% right. I, yeah, I, I, I get exactly what you're saying. That totally makes sense to me. Look, if they were making the the Treasure Island remake today, all I'm saying is Sebastian Stan would be cast as Long John Silver and everyone would be going nuts for it. You know, we'll talk about Captain Hook uh, very soon, but, you know, when they just had him in Peter and Wendy, you know, it's, uh, it was what, Jude Law, right? So it's, I mean, there's, there's already precedent. And uh, once upon a time, literally... It was like, yeah, Captain Hook was a villain. And they show some very dark things. I am not undermining that. But the show and the fandom pretty much all went just like, but sexy. That, but sexy. And, and his villainy will be targeted towards love. And, and that's all it takes. So yes, the <laughs> daddyification of Captain Hook, I think, proves that it very easily could and perhaps should uh, be done with Long John Silver. And and I think that's that's enough on that. And we should move forward to our more depressing topics. Yeah, this was quite a, a thing to try to segue to. But I did want to take the time because I think it's important given how involved he was in several movies that we've talked about and he was under contract with the studio. This is the second to last time that we're going to talk about Bobby Driscoll on this podcast. This was his last on-screen appearance for Disney. You know, he was the voice and live action reference for Peter Pan, which were also in production around this time. That goes into 1951. So obviously after this movie comes out, but you know, the voice and the live action reference happens pretty early in the process. So this is around the same time of his last overall work for Disney. Uh, he gets released from his contract uh, in 1953, just weeks after Peter Pan was released. Uh, and then a year later in 1954, he's 17 years old and he tries heroin for the first time. Uh, two years after that, he would he was arrested twice in the span of about six weeks, once for marijuana possession and once for assault. He did uh, sober up, have a little bit of a try of getting his career back. He was in like a teen drive-in movie called The Party Crashers. Frances Farmer, it was her last role. She played his mother, but it was uh, his last on-screen appearance in a in a conventional film. He was in some avant-garde stuff, avant-garde films in the 50s, uh, which is where he ends up next. He was involved in Wallace Berman's avant-garde art scene in LA, which according to an NYU retrospective in 2007, uh, included people who had made it in Hollywood only to drop out and people who lived from hand to mouth and in some cases were petty criminals on the lam. So not a, a very respected collective of artists, but kind of a bunch of drifters that hung out together and made uh, collages were their kind of specialty. By 1960, at the age of 23, he had fathered three children with a wife who then left him uh, that year. In 1965, he drifted into Andy Warhol's scene in New York, uh, but had completely fallen through the cracks by 1967. 
He died in 1968 from the hardening of the arteries, uh, which was a common side effect from heavy heavy heroin use. He wasn't identified for about a year and a half. Uh, His father fell ill. His mother actually reached out to the FBI and Walt Disney to help find her son because they had lost touch with him. And he had been buried in unmarked grave on Hearts Island uh, and was not identified at the time of, uh, of his death in 1968. And so his death basically goes unremarked by the press until 1972 when Song of the South was getting a re-release and uh, people writing sort of like, where are they now? Articles about the re-release. So that's where his death actually gets publicized because the, these journalists were trying to contact him to get a, you know, a quote about his time making Song of the South for Disney uh, and discovered that he, had, that he had died at that point. By that time, there was little physical evidence left of his Hollywood career. Um, his Oscar ha- had actually been lost in a house fire at that point. So it's just a completely tragic story, you know, and I know there's a lot of just controversial things about child acting in the first place. There's people who certainly lay blame for Disney either as a company or Walt Disney personally for, you know, what happened to Bobby Driscoll after. But it's really, no matter how you feel about it, it's just absolutely tragedy uh, that he, you know, his his life was so short and so troubled, um, you know, and he had, you know, he had won an Oscar previously and, you know, was at least being recognized for the work that he was doing as a kid. And, you know, I, I just think that transition even in the best of situations, I think is just really hard on people. Definitely. And there are amazing resources, including podcasts that are being done right now by former Disney stars and Disney Channel stars talking about what it is to be a child star and what it is to suddenly not be a Disney star anymore and not know what to do after that point. I know that there have been various conversations about You're suddenly in the adult entertainment industry and you're typecast as a Disney actor and how hard that is. There are very few actors who have done it successfully. I think Zendaya is probably the best example thus far of being able to manage it successfully. But of course, we are still fairly early on after her Disney career. But there are obviously many, many child stars who either went down a similar path or simply left the entertainment industry altogether, which seems to have been the healthier path. I don't know what the solution is. I, it has been talked about that we just have adults act as kids and tell everyone to accept the pantomime as we did in theater. And maybe that is the solution because traumatizing children certainly isn't it. I don't know. It's, it's very difficult, and I think that at a minimum, the companies have a responsibility to the actors after they are not leading their career anymore. That, I don't know, maybe for two years after the company pays for therapy, or the company has a pension of sorts that at least takes care of, you know, basic living conditions for these people to find out who they are outside of it. It's it's a complicated topic, but it is definitely one that needs to be talked about and certainly is something that we felt needed to be talked about after enjoying this movie and enjoying Bobby Driscoll's work. There's There's plenty to be said about him being a child actor in the sense of a child who does not quite know how to act yet in his earlier productions. I would say this is one of his best. He does some really remarkable things here. I think that particularly the scenes where he, as Jim Hawkins, is getting onto the ship and raising the flag, all of that done without or with minimal background noise, is very well done. And you can absolutely see him struggling and fighting and he does a fantastic job and I applaud his performance and I hate if this performance had anything to do with the downfall that unfortunately came shockingly shortly thereafter. That's you know a huge reason why I wanted to make sure that we took the time to to talk about this because you know it is it is so tragic and it is so clear and yet it's so familiar 
you know, not in the details, but in in the arc of it, and it it's definitely troubling. But I I think again, you know, not having seen so dear to my heart before, and only having seen Song of the South once many years ago, seeing his these three performances of his in quick succession, like he's I think gives a better performance in so dear to my heart than he did in Song of the South. And this is even much better than his performance in Surgery to My Heart. So it, you can see him, you know, not only just growing up as a person, but just actually getting better at acting. And I think this story to be engaging, even for kids, needs to have a good lead actor as Jim, because like he's the point of view character. He's in the entire movie, basically. And so, you know, it's... It's different from like So Dear to My Heart, which is like a movie about kids in like a kid situation where this is a movie about a kid in a very adult situation, you know, and Jim is almost closer to being a teenager than a child at this point. Like he's an older child, I guess. And so I think that all it 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 takes that much more skill and, and, you know, experience to, to really pull that off. And I think, you know, he does a great job here. I love his voice work in you know, and Peter Pan that we'll talk about pretty soon. And so, you know, it, it really just felt important to, to kind of talk about. And those were the things that we definitely, the information <laughs> that we definitely wanted to share, but we always like to give uh, our own takes uh, and call out anything that we didn't get a chance to talk about earlier in our notes. But uh, this is a movie I saw several times as a kid. And, you know, if it was like on you know, Disney Channel, like I'm sure, I, I think I rented it from the library like a couple of times. And so it, it's a movie that I liked a lot as a kid. And then I, I, I don't remember if I had seen it before or after the Muppet version. Like, I don't know if my mom was like, oh, like we loved Muppet Treasure Island. Like, let me rent the, Muppet, the Treasure Island that I, I grew up with as a kid and remembered. But I definitely saw it a few times. This is at least the second time I watched it as an adult. And it just the, the production of it, like the, you know, like, the costuming and the colors and the sets are all just fantastic. Uh, I think the movie, like, it looks great. It actually feels, I think, a lot more expensive than it actually is. Robert Newton gives an amazing performance, even not knowing how big of how big of a deal <laughs> that performance actually is. I think just in the movie, it works really well. And the things that I don't like about this are the things that are pretty much in the source material that I also don't really care for. You know, I, I don't think it's a the movie's fault for doing a good adaptation of a work that I think the pacing is off on. You know, like it's it's one of those where the they're taking on the flaws in the source material and replicating them. And so like I can't ding it too hard for that, but I think they do a really good job telling the story. And it's probably like the best straight adaptation of Treasure Island, I think, you know, of the ones that I'm aware of and the bits that I've seen of them. I think, you know, I prefer Muppet Treasure Island. I think Treasure Planet is not a great movie, but a huge, like, just a fascinating project. It's one of those movies where, like, I want to love it more than I do, but I, like, I get why people do love it, and I'm very happy for them, but I just, I wish I, I don't quite get there in my feeling, but it's still a a fascinating project. And I'm very excited to talk about that a few years from now on this podcast when we get there, because there's a whole, there's a whole backstory and the reason why it was so expensive and all that kind of stuff. But when you watch it, like it, it is a movie that doesn't look like any other movie, the way that the animation is done. So yeah, there's a lot of different legacies for this, but yeah, I, I, I really enjoy it. So I, I might like it more than I consider it a good movie. But again, the problems are really in the source material for me. I somehow had no exposure to Treasure Island. Not to the movies, not to the book. Which I'm not sure how that happened because I'm pretty sure I read my entire elementary school library. Apparently we didn't have it, I suppose, because of the violence, perhaps. So this was this was kind of a new thing to me. And... I think I've mentioned before that, you know, as we've gone through all of these different movies, basically every time I watch an animated movie, I go back to, is it as good of a narrative as Snow White? And is it as good of animation quality as Pinocchio? And I think that it will definitely be interesting to see as we go through these live action films I think that I'll consider consistently be going, is this as good as Treasure Island? 
there are certainly flaws with it, and I think we've talked through them. There's some heartbreak with it, as we've just finished discussing. But I actually, I really enjoy this movie, and I think that it is probably the only movie that we have watched thus far that I would put on a rewatch list that wasn't just for the sake of nostalgia. I think I would just enjoy this watching this movie again because I just enjoy this movie. And that's kind of hard to say given, you know, I think this is maybe our 20th film or, or just shy of. Let's see. This is our 21st episode, at least. I don't know. I think this, this is probably my favorite so far. And that's, that's saying a lot. We've already passed the golden age. So that's, I guess that's where I'll leave it. it. Is it a perfect movie? Absolutely not. But it is a very enjoyable movie. And that is something that I really applaud the actors. I applaud the director. We don't have that much information about the production as compared to many of the animated films, but I genuinely think this is one of the best movies that we've watched so far. I don't want to say like shocked, but I'm just like, I'm loving <laughs> your reaction to this movie. Like, because for one, we were getting to this point and I was like, oh no, what if Megan hates all of the live action movies? <laughs> and there's so many that we have to talk about. And I know that some of them are going to be absolutely awful. Like, I, I know that for a fact, I've seen some of them and some of them are just going to be weird and we'll have fun talking about them. But the fact that you like this movie so much makes me just ecstatic because there's going to be so many of these adventure movies that we're going to talk about, like Davy Crockett and Zorro and The Sword and the Rose, I think we're doing this season, early next season. My favorite Disney live action movie, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, uh, we'll be talking about eventually. And so the chance that you're going to like some of these other movies that we're going to talk about is just like, I'm just thrilled because it's going to make doing this podcast that much more fun because at least we have like a good baseline where like we both like Treasure Island. So, you know, if we are using this as a benchmark, it's a really, I think it's a really good one in that way. And it just makes me excited to talk about all these other movies that we're going to be talking about. And again, not that I think there aren't going to be bad ones, but uh, at least I know that there'll be some more that we'll probably end up both enjoying. Absolutely. I mean, the, the book is a classic the movie should be, arguably. It's, it's definitely important, if nothing else. If we're talking the history of adventure cinema as a whole, much less, you know, within Disney. Yeah, I think that this is, this is solid and it actually gives me a lot of hope for where we are going from here. It's funny, watching this as an adult, like, it's funny that they cut it down for violence because I, I'm always surprised how violent this version is. Like, and it's not that the violence itself is in any way anything short of like, you know, comical and kind of like goofy, but there's just, there's a lot of it. <laughs> like it's, it's the, it's not the quality of the violence. It's the quantity of the violence. I think that surprises me uh, every time I watched it. And again, the violence is inherent in the story being told like you, you know, you can adapt it, but you know, I think because I've seen the Muppet version so many times and Muppet violence is a different thing, a different thing altogether that almost doesn't count as violence in, in its own way. I just forget how violent the story is. And I think the way that they do it is, I think, appropriate for kids. Um, I'm definitely more on the side of like, showing blood is good because kids need to understand what happens when you stab somebody. <laughs> like, you know, I think... I think showing it in a not, you know, exploitative way, but in a sort of somewhat more grounded way is maybe a, a, a better track than filling people with bullets in PG-13 movies. And it's just like puffs of smoke when it when it hits them. So I, I'm, I'm pro-violence is what I'm saying. <laughs> I think that this has been an interesting episode. You're pro-violence. I am pro uh, the... How did, how did we phrase it? The daddyification of Long John Silver. This episode has been a roller coaster I was not expecting, but I, I have definitely enjoyed it, and I hope that all of our listeners enjoy it as much as we do.
if you listen and you don't necessarily watch, this is one I'm going to tell you, go ahead and watch. Some of these movies don't. Um, they're, they're either uh, really, really not appropriate or just really not good. This is the exception. This is, this is a movie you definitely should be watching if you were uncertain. Don't expect it to be, you know, uh, super accurate in the violence, but I don't think that's a bad thing. I will say that if nothing else, it will probably not be scary for your children. It will probably be very funny for your children. Especially some of the upcoming live-action films will see similar things. I know that in Robin Hood, there is a great moment that we will talk about in that one where somebody gets shot and falls off a tree. It's hilarious. 1950s violence is not what you might expect. But I, I definitely think that this is a movie that you should watch, especially if you found this to be an entertaining episode of the podcast. I fully agree. It, it's on Disney+. Plus. It's well worth the time spent with it. And again, I think this is also, like, like we said, I think it's a good example of what these movies can be and a good sample of the flavor of what they will be. Like I said, I, I, this is definitely one to, to spend the time with, especially if you, if you have at all any affinity for pirates in general. I think this is definitely worth your time. Absolutely. Going forward, we're going to have a lot of kind of similar films. Looking at the animated world, we're going to have Peter Pan. Looking at the live action world, we're going to see a lot of similar themes and elements in some of the upcoming movies with the story of Robin Hood, with the Sword in the Rose, with Rob Roy. You know, there's a lot coming up. Ironically, our next episode is going to be a little bit of a deviation. Next time on Dream with Mind and Heart, we're taking a trip down the rabbit hole to Wonderland. There are definitely connections between Wonderland and the other parts of this season. I don't know that there are any connections between Treasure Island and Wonderland, other than the fact that they're based on books. But that's a wild ride of its own, and I'm looking forward to hearing what you all think. In the meantime, you can always email us at dreamwithmindandheart at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter, dreammindheart, and on Instagram at dreamwithmindandheart. Thanks to Rosalie Kicks for our artwork, Honey Badger's Folk for our theme song, and our editor, Tessa Suela.